Well, good morning. Hey, it's good to be here today. I'm excited to be here with you all. And uh, we're going to be talking today, we're going to be answering a question, who do you trust? And uh, just to give you the punchline, we should trust God and we should trust the Bible. So that's kind of where we're headed today. And, um, you know, I was thinking about, you know, we, we often uh, go through things that are controversial and challenging, and I've had conversations with people after church that are really fun, where we have these vigorous debates and people saying, I think you were wrong, you know, and, uh, and, and so that happens, and, and I love that, and I love being a part of this church family, and this morning's going to be one of those mornings, and uh, we're going to be having a discussion that for some people, uh, you're going to respond and, just go, and you're going to just say, of course, this is so obvious. Why are we even talking about this? And others are going to think, this is crazy. It is obviously wrong. Um, you know, and, and it's going to challenge core beliefs that you've potentially had your whole life. So today's going to be one of those days. And uh, what I would just say is that it, it, no matter where you are, um, in this church family, we all love each other. We want to believe the truth. And God intends for us to talk to each other about things. And um, because we all want to believe the truth, and we actually know that believing things that are not true is not pleasing to God, and it is not helpful for life. And uh, there, are, there are some people who their approach to controversial things is to say, don't talk about it. Don't offend anybody. Uh, it just doesn't matter what people believe, but what, what you find out from Scripture is actually what we believe does matter, and God wants us to believe the truth, and uh, the truth is available, and that includes things about the future. So we've been talking about the resurrection, and um, one of the things a lot of people, when it comes to end times, it's controversial, and people just say, hey, it doesn't really matter. Uh, let's not worry about that. Let's just focus on today. But one of the things that you find out is all through the New Testament, what we know and believe about the future actually affects how we live today. And while God has not told us everything, He has told us things that we need to know. And it's not just the future that is actually important. The past is also important. And so we need to believe the truth about the past and the future. And Satan's plan for you and me is just like his plan was for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. His plan was that they would trust earthly wisdom instead of God's wisdom. And so for us, we need to trust God. Uh, I want to just read a passage that I love. It's in Psalm 119, verse 97, and this is what it says. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. So the psalmist just says, God, I love what you write, I meditate on it, and I think about it. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all of my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. You know, um, God is smarter than anybody who's ever taught you. Um, God is smarter and has more experience in life than any old person you know. And that's why when we read and study and believe what God says, 
It makes us wiser than our enemies, wiser than our teachers, and wiser than old people. So we need to be those who study God's Word. Now, I want to ask you a question. So this is a review of what we've been talking about with the resurrection. And I want to just ask you this. Um, if I said to you, um, I do not believe in the historical reality of the resurrection. I don't believe it actually happened. I don't think it's true. I think that the resurrection is a story that illustrates spiritual truth. And it is actually not important whether Jesus actually rose from the dead. Like, whether or not that's a historical fact is unimportant. God communicates it to us so that we can learn a spiritual lesson, so that we can think about life the way God intends us to think about life, but it's actually not historically true um, that, that the person Jesus rose from the dead. So if I said that, would you go, hey, sounds good. This is an unimportant thing for us to debate about. Whether or not, you know, if you believe Jesus rose from the dead, good for you. I don't believe it. But it doesn't actually matter to the spiritual value of thinking about the resurrection of Jesus. I still believe that Jesus was God in the flesh, that he lived a perfect life, that he died on, on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, but I don't believe he was born of a virgin. We know that doesn't happen. Virgins don't give birth. It's unimportant. Um, by the way, there's a very well-known pastor um, that one of the things he says is, I don't debate the virgin birth because it's unimportant. Whether or not you believe in the virgin birth doesn't impact who Jesus is. Um, if I said that, you know, I believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, but I don't actually believe in the miracles that he did. You know, like when he fed the 5,000 um, from some loaves and a couple fish. Actually, what happened was a little kid shared some food, and when people saw this kid sharing food, they were inspired to be generous, and they all shared the food they had. Jesus didn't turn those few things into food that would feed a crowd. Now, never mind that Jesus' whole discussion about the feeding of the 5,000 was to say, these people have been here all day and they're super hungry and they need food. Like, forget that part. Um, this story of this miracle is actually just an illustration of spiritual truth that God intends us to learn from, but it's unimportant whether or not it's true. Um, I believe, if I said to you, I believe that the Bible is inspired it is the Word of God. But when God wrote the Bible, He didn't intend for us to believe those things. Um, they are just illustrations and stories. Um, kind of like the swoon theory for the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus was put in a tomb, and He didn't actually die and rise again. He was put in a tomb, and it was just kind of cold in there, and His body revived. And it's actually unimportant whether those things are historically true. They give us spiritual truth that's meant to inspire us. But the connection between what the Bible says and history doesn't really matter. How do you think 
Paul would respond to that. And based on what we've looked at in 1 Corinthians 15, um, I think Paul, he actually did respond to that, right? Like we just went over that. And he said, if you don't believe in the resurrection, then Jesus hasn't been raised. And if Jesus hasn't been raised, then you are still in your sins. There is no forgiveness. If this historical fact that we're saying is untrue, the theological truth behind that historical fact is untrue. Like that's what Paul said, right? And if we believe that Paul is an inspired writer, what's more important? Who actually said that? God said that, right? If God inspired Paul to write. So <clears throat> what I want to say is Paul would say that if the history is not true, neither is the theology. That's what he says about the resurrection. And what I would say personally is if when you read the Bible, the things that the Bible portrays to be historically true, if when you read it, those things are not actually historically true, and I got a question for you. If the Bible can't get the history right, why would you believe what the Bible says about spiritual things? Like, I wouldn't. It's like if God can't keep track of historical details, why would we trust Him for other things? And um, what I think is interesting is that for many Christians, they believe if we compromise these, quote, unbelievable things um, that are recorded in Scripture, that it will make the spiritual truth more palatable. And what I would just say is this, if um, you compromise the history of Scripture, you're not convincing anybody who denies the history of Scripture. The people who deny the history of Scripture also deny the spiritual things in Scripture. And, and when we think that we're accommodating and we're being more intelligent and more acceptable, it's actually not true. And everybody knows that except the people who compromise the truth of Scripture. So, what I would just say is this, if the resurrection's not true, then our faith is in vain. Paul said that, right? If the virgin birth isn't true, then our faith is in vain. If the miracles described in the New Testament that Jesus did, if those are not true, then who the Bible says Jesus is, is not true. If, if the miracles in Exodus are not actually true, why would we trust anything that the Bible says? If Jonah was not swallowed by a fish, and, and it's amazing to me because Jesus actually connects Jonah with his own death and resurrection. Jesus portrays that like it's true. So if that's not true, um, if the account of creation and Adam and Eve is not true, why would we believe the things that the Bible says? And so this is another passage that I want us to just think about, and this is what the Apostle Paul says. He says this, <clears throat> For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So this is something that I want to say. We're going to go over some stuff today, and what I want you to know is the experts um, are unimportant when it comes to what we believe or what we don't believe. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care what kind of a degree you have. Experts are not important. Pleasing and being accepted by people is unimportant. You want to know who else's opinion is unimportant? (laughs) Mine. (laughs) My opinion's unimportant. So if you're in this church and you feel like, oh man, I disagree with Roger, Roger thinks this, I feel this pressure that I have to say I agree with him, I just want to tell you, get rid of that pressure. Because as unimportant as all the experts are, I am also unimportant. But I will tell you somebody who's not unimportant, and that is God. And so when it comes down to the title of our sermon, Who Do You Trust? I'm just going to ask you today to think about who is it that you trust? And uh, we're going to see three things today. The first one is that uh, you should trust God. The second is that you should trust the Bible. And then the third thing we're going to see in this passage, I'm going to give you an example of something that the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15 that you should trust. So let's do this. Um, we're going to go over some verses that we've gone over before, but we're going to point out something. I'm going to point out a different emphasis in them. So let's look at verse 1 and 2. The apostle says this related to the gospel. He says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received. So they received it. They trusted it. In which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. So he's talking when it comes to the gospel about faith. Who do you believe? And um, I'm going to just throw a couple verses up here. This first point is going to be super short. (laughs) You should believe God. I don't think I need to spend a lot of time on that. I think you know that (laughs) I believe that already. But Hebrews 6.18 says, it is impossible for God to lie. You thought about that? Um, Titus 1-2, God who never lies. And then when you look at John 14-6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the truth. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's interesting how truth is connected to the gospel and how God is truth. God doesn't just tell the truth. God is truth. Okay, there's point one. Hey, that was quicker than usual, right? How about number two? You should trust God's Word. If it's true that the Bible comes from God, that He inspired it, then nothing in the Bible can be untrue. Um, Nothing in the Bible can be a mistake if God inspired it. Because if God wrote it, um, and God is all-powerful, He has the power to make sure it's true, If God is all-knowing, then He knows everything that's true. God doesn't make mistakes. Guess who does make mistakes? People make mistakes. You know, I think about things as simple as CPR. Um, I've been certified in CPR in my life probably about 15 times. 
And for most of those times, when they were training me to do CPR, they showed me how you do the chest compressions and then you br do breaths, then chest compressions and then breaths. But the last time I took CPR, they said, don't do breaths, just do chest compressions. Um, the experts in the medical field over things that are so simple, like CPR, are constantly changing their opinion because they don't know everything. But God never makes mistakes. Um, the Bible says this in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Like what the gospel, he just says, relies on what the Bible says, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So he's emphasizing the truth of Scripture. Um, and this is one of the things that he says. He taught, when he talks about the Bible, he says all Scripture, that is everything in the Bible, is God-breathed. He breathed it out. And it is profitable. It is beneficial for teaching. In other words, we read the Bible to know what we're supposed to believe. It is profitable for reproof. That's for telling people that they're wrong. Uh, we go to Scripture, and then we can go to somebody and say, you're wrong based on Scripture. For correction, when we're in error, we can go to the Bible to find out what's right. And for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And, um, you know, when it comes to the authority and truthfulness of Scripture, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 15 to 16, about the resurrection. He says, For we are found to be misrepresenting God. He's saying if the resurrection is not true. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. And if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. Then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hoped in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. You want to know what Paul says? He never says Oh, the Bible's kind of has these spiritual ideas, and as long as you hold on to the spiritual ideas, it doesn't actually matter if the other things in it are true. He never says that. And I think Paul and God would say, if what's in the Bible isn't true, then nothing is true. And for a lot of believers, when the Bible is attacked, they feel like, well, I don't want people to not believe the spiritual truth, so... These hard questions that we struggle to answer, let's just give up on those. And maybe if we'll agree with unbelievers, maybe if we'll agree with people who deny the historical facts of the Bible, maybe they'll accept the spiritual truth. And God, I think, in this passage communicates that that's not true. So here's the third thing. I want to just look at an example of something that we should believe. So... First uh, Corinthians fifteen twenty one to twenty two says, "For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive." You want to know what Paul is saying, 
In the same way we believe theology about Jesus because of who He is, we believe the theology about sin and death because of Adam. So Paul believes Adam was a real person. And we have a description of the fall of mankind and where death came from in Genesis chapter 2. It says, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. (laughs) Okay. And then God made a woman, right? It says in verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. So God made Adam... He told him not to eat from the tree, and then he made Eve. And you want to know it's interesting how much these things are talked about in Scripture as the basis of theology, and yet there are so many people who will read the opening chapters of Genesis and say, none of that stuff historically happened. You know, Paul says this in 1 Timothy 2.13, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. Um, God tells us that because of sin, we die. And he actually recorded how that happened in Genesis. And then you have the fall, how the fall happened in Genesis chapter 3. So 1 Corinthians 15 goes on. If you look at verse 45, it says, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. Did you know that when Paul says that, he's quoting Genesis He's quoting where it says that God made Adam out of dirt and then breathed into him the breath of life, and he became a living being. So Paul is referring to the creation account as though it's real, and he's basing theology on the creation account. It goes on, it says, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit, It's not that the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. Um, He's basically saying Adam was made out of dirt. And then it says, and also those who are of the dust, that's us, as the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born of the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man in heaven. Now, that is incredibly unbelievable to people, that God took dirt, scraped it together, and made a man. Um, You know, you've heard all kinds of things about God having a competition with scientists, and uh, the scientists get dirt, and they want to try to make a person out of it, and then God says, no, get your own dirt. Um, (laughs) God made everything out of nothing. So here's the thing. If we believe that there is a God who created everything out of nothing, if you believe that, is it hard to believe that God scraped dirt together and then breathed into it the breath of life? Now, if you believe there is no God, then none of this is believable. Uh, That we're sinners, not believable. That there's any kind of a moral standard of right and wrong. If you don't believe in God, then you, you could just not believe in sin. If you don't believe in God, why would you believe that Jesus was God and died on the cross for our sins to pay the price for our sins? If you don't believe that there's a God who created the world out of nothing, then nothing in the Bible is believable. But if you believe that God made everything out of nothing, is reading the account in Genesis a hard thing to comprehend or to believe? 
Of course not. Are miracles hard to believe? God made the world. He made everything out of nothing. He made the world spin. He created the whole universe. Is it hard to believe that God may interrupt what he created? No, that's not hard to believe. So Genesis chapter 1 talks about God creating um, God's creation. Um, In verse 25, it just says this, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. So this is an interesting thing. You have the theory of evolution, which is that things turned into other things. And one of the things I would just challenge us to think about, the theory of evolution makes absolutely no rational sense. Um, It is impossible for the things that we see in this world to have gradually developed. Um, There's a, a scientist that wrote a book about the eye, and he was saying that the eye was Darwin's black box. In other words, Darwin knew that light went into the eye, and then he knew that people could see, but Darwin had no idea how that actually worked. So it was like this black box. He didn't know what was inside it. And so Darwin's idea is that that things gradually developed, and the first first creature kind of developed this eye that kind of partially worked, and and he could see a little bit better. This, This could see a little better than other things. And then eventually there was another mutation and that person could see a little bit better. So then they were able to survive more. You know, just that whole idea of like gradual development, except that the eye cannot gradually develop. There are billions of chemicals that have to happen perfectly to be able to see. And if you're missing any of them, it doesn't work. I'll give you a a much simpler illustration. Blood clotting. You know, blood takes 10 factors to clot. And if you're missing those factors, clotting doesn't work right. So if you have eight of those factors, it's not better than zero. You have to have all 10 or it's of no value. There are so many things in life that could never um, gradually develop. They are irreducibly complex. So the, I, th- those, that type of an idea is not rational. And yet you'll have scientists that say, this is what we should believe about how we got here. And I would just say, no, we got here the way God said we got here. When you plant an orange seed, orange trees grow. And for evolutionists, they have the magical pixie dust of time. And they say, but in billions and billions of years of planting orange trees, you'll get an apple tree. Um, And every time I've had dogs and they have they, they, they may get pregnant and give birth. They always give birth to puppies. I've never had dogs that gave birth to a horse, a cat, or, or, a, or a gorilla. Like, that's never happened. But we can have the magical pixie dust of time to say that these things happen. But God says in Genesis that everything reproduces after its kind. So it goes on, and it says in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over everything that creeps on the ground. So God created man in his own image, and male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. And then in uh, verse chapter 2, talks about the seventh day when God rested. 
And we're going to go through Genesis, actually not for the purpose of creation and all that stuff, for the other things that are in Genesis, but I'll say we're not going to skip the creation element. We'll get into these things in more detail when we go through Genesis. But on the seventh day, which I believe are actual days, it says there's evening and there's morning, there's the first day. There's evening and there's morning and then there's the second day. And people want to argue about day, that a day is like a thousand years, day could be a period of time. And I just want you to know that in Hebrew, day is used exactly like we use it in English. And that is, I could say back in the day, meaning a period of time. But what I would never say is, it took me three days to clean my garage, meaning three weeks, three months, or three years. Every single time day is used with a number, it always means 24 hours. But that's a discussion for Genesis. It goes on in Genesis chapter 2, verse 5. It says, When no brush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, there was no man to work the ground. And the mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the earth. And then this is a verse that Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, uh, this is the verse in Genesis, then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground. He's citing that in 1 Corinthians 15. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Paul cites that in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, he says, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now, here's what I want to ask you. If the account of creation is unbelievable to you, when you read Genesis, you have to force on it that it's a, it's a myth, it's an illustration, it's a story. I would just ask you, why? What drives you, when you read Genesis, to not believe that it is exactly what it says? It's interesting as you go through the Bible how often these things are referred to throughout Scripture. How about genealogies? Have you ever thought about the genealogies of Jesus in the Gospels? They start with Adam and they end up with Jesus. Um, all the genealogies in the Bible that's listing names. And yet, if the opening chapters of Genesis aren't real, at what point does this genealogy turn from a list of real names to mythical ideas? So, like throughout Scripture, it is never portrayed as mythical, as not real. And um, so, um, I, I want to show you something that uh, this is something that um, is actually a quotation from Charles Russell. Now, Charles Russell is the, the one who started the Jehovah Witness Church. And this is what he says about the Bible. And, and I want to explain, I think that this is something that can help us understand why so many Christians can read the Bible that is so obviously portrayed in a certain way and force on it a different understanding. So this is what he says. He says, if the six volumes of Scripture studies, which we now know as the Watchtower magazine, he says, if the six volumes of the Scripture studies, are they are practically the Bible arranged topically, topically arranged, with Bible proof, proof texts given, we may not improperly name the volumes the Bible in an arranged form. 
That is to say, they are not merely comments on the Bible, they are practically the Bible itself. So he writes the watchtower, he arranges verses in a certain way, and then he explains those verses, and he defines that as the Bible itself. Now, this is um, a shocking thing that he goes on to say, furthermore, not only do we define that people cannot see the divine plan in studying the Bible itself. Did you hear that? If you study the Bible by itself, you cannot see the divine plan. So he's arranged Scripture, and if you study his writings, that's the Bible. If you read the Bible by itself, you cannot see, um, you cannot see the divine plan. Okay, Um, but we see also that if anyone lays the Scripture studies aside, even after he has used them, after becoming familiar with them, after he has read them for 10 years, so if you take the watchtower and you study it and you read it for 10 years and you are steeped in it and then you set it to the side... Um, It says uh, he's familiar with them, he's read them for 10 years. If he then lays them aside and ignores them and goes to the Bible alone, though he has understood his Bible for 10 years, our experience shows that within two years he goes into darkness. Can you think about that? If Jehovah Witnesses study their writing for 10 years, which is practically the Bible, it leads them to light. If they set aside this training that they've received and they ignore it and they just read the Bible, they go into darkness. By the way, this is a topic I bring up with almost every Jehovah Witness I talk to. Um, I always say to them, hey, Charles T. Russell said this. He said, if you study the Bible that God wrote, you'll go into darkness. But if you study your writings, you'll have spiritual truth. Doesn't that seem wrong to you? that what God wrote leads people to darkness, but what humans wrote leads people to light? I think that's a problem, don't you? And and that's my conversation with Jehovah Witnesses. He goes on and he says, if he lays them aside, ignores them, goes to the Bible alone, though he has understood his Bible for 10 years, our experience shows that within two years he goes into darkness. So what Charles T. Russell says is two years of reading the Bible is more helpful than 10 years of studying false teaching. Um, What I want to tell um, us is that when it comes to how we approach Genesis, there are people who have been trained and who have filled their mind with unbiblical teaching, with lies about how our world got here. Scientists, Um, have taught this. And there are Christians who have studied under scientists and people who will defend the resurrection and yet deny the things that the Bible says. And if you study their writings, the writings of these people, if you're diligent and you study those writings and then you go read the Bible, you will be able to put aside, just like the Jehovah Witnesses, you will be able to put aside what the Bible teaches and you will be able to force, take this other stuff you've heard, and you will be able to reinterpret the Scriptures that you're reading. 
And you'll read things like what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, talking about how Adam's a real person, citing the creation account, and you will read that passage and say, but that's not what it means. You will read Genesis, obvious, clear explanation of history. You will read it, and you will put it through the lens of these other people that you've been studying, and you will read that, and then you will just interpret it differently. And that's why I tell people in church, um, read the Bible. Start at the beginning and read to the end. And when you're done, read it again. Because you will not read the Bible from beginning to end. You know how he says if you put the Scripture studies aside, if you put them out of your mind and you just read Scripture, you'll go into darkness? If you put aside all these heroes that you have, all these things that you learned when you were in school, if you put those things to the side and you just read the Bible and you think to yourself, God wrote this, what is He saying? What do the words, what are the definitions of the words in Scripture? What does grammar actually mean? And what is the grammar? If you do that and you read the Bible, I'm just telling you, you will not come to the conclusion that we evolved over a long period of time. Now, I want to show you a video, and I want to show you a video that is by a person, that's going to display a person, the kind of person who teaches in colleges, the kind of person who trained your science teachers, the kind of people that if you went to college, you sat in and listened to. So um, there's going to be two people. This, is, this clip is from a movie called Expelled. It's a movie about intelligent design. Neither of the people on the screen that you're going to see are Christians. Uh, one of them is a guy named Richard Dawkins, and he's a scientist. And uh, Richard Dawkins is a person who is a son of a rich commercial farmer. He was raised as an Anglican Christian. Uh, he abandoned his faith as a teenager, and he embraced evolution as the explanation of life. In high school, he read a book called Why I'm Not a Christian by Bertrand Russell, and he's going to refer to Bertrand Russell. Um, He studied zoology. He got a doctorate in philosophy. He was a science professor at UC Berkeley. He lectured at Oxford, and he and people like him are the scientists who write the books that we read and study. The person who's going to question him, uh, his name is um, Ben Stein, and some of you guys will know him from from, um, uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He was the teacher that said, Bueller, Bueller. So he's an actor, he's a comedian, but you might not know this, he's an attorney, and uh, he taught law at Pepperdine University. He was a speechwriter for Nixon and Ford, and... um, and you probably know him as being an actor, so he's also a very intelligent person. Neither of them are Christians. And um, what I want to ask you is this, as you watch this video, I want you to think about, for Richard Dawkins, is he a scientist studying the world and going wherever the evidence leads him? Or is he a person who hates God and who is willing to take any explanation other than God, even for things that are obvious, 
and because uh, he's, he's going to ask him about intelligent design. And I want you to think about where does Richard Dawkins say intelligent design that we see in this world may have come from? So let's watch this. Hello, Professor Dawkins. How are you? I'm Ben Stein. I'm so sorry to keep you waiting. You have, uh, you have written that uh, God is a psychotic delinquent invented by mad, deluded people. No, I didn't say quite that. I said something rather better than that. Oh, well, please tell us what you said. Please tell us what you said. Um, I, well, I would have to read it from, from, from the book. No, please. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. So that's what you think of God? Yeah. Um, I believe that it is a liberating thing to free yourself from primitive superstition. So religion is a primitive superstition? Oh, I, I think it is, yes. So. Uh... You believe it's liberating to uh, tell people that there is no God? I think a lot of people, when they give up God, feel a great sense of release uh, and freedom. Why do you think that? I mean, what's your well, dad, what's your scientist, what's your dad? I think, well, I've had a lot of, of letters saying that. And I've, there are eight billion people in the world, yeah, Dr. Yeah, Dawkins. How many letters yeah, have you had? No, I haven't, I haven't done that. That's quite, quite true. Well, then who did create the heavens and the earth? Why do you use the word who? You see, you, you, you immediately beg the question by using the word who. Well, then how did it get created? Well, um, by a very slow process. Well, how did it start? Nobody knows how, how it started. We know the kind of event that it must have been. We know the sort of event that, that must have happened for the origin of life. And what was that? It was the origin of the first self-replicating molecule. Right, and how did that happen? I told you, we don't know. So you have no idea how it started? No, no. no, no nor has anybody. Nor has anyone else. What do you think is the possibility that, there, that intelligent design might turn out to be uh, the answer to some issues in uh, genetics or in, well, in evolution? It could come about in the following way. It could be that uh, at some earlier time, somewhere in the universe, a civilization evolved by probably some kind of Darwinian means to a very, very high level of technology and designed a form of life that they seeded onto perhaps this, this planet. Um, now, th that is a possibility and an intriguing possibility. Mm -hmm. And I suppose it's possible that you might find evidence for that if you look at the, um, at the detail, details of biochemistry, molecular biology, you might find a signature of some sort of designer. Wait a second. Richard Dawkins thought intelligent design might be a legitimate pursuit? Um, and that designer could well be a higher intelligence from elsewhere in the universe. Well, but that higher intelligence would itself have had to have come about by some explicable or ultimately explicable process. It couldn't have just jumped into existence spontaneously. That's the point. So Professor Dawkins was not against intelligent design just certain types of designers, such as God. So the, the Hebrew God, the God of the Old Testament, he doesn't exist in your view? Um, 
Certainly. I mean, that would be a very unpleasant pro prospect. And uh, the trend, holy trinity of the no, New Testament. Nothing, that nothing like that. So you don't believe in any god anywhere? Any god anywhere would be completely incompatible with 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 anything that I've said. In, I, in, I yeah. I'm just wanted to make sure you don't okay. believe in any god anywhere. No. What if you, if after you died you ran into God? He said, "What have you been doing, Richard? I mean, what have you been doing? I've been trying well, to be nice to you. Yeah. I gave you a multi-million-dollar paycheck yeah. over and over again with your book, and look what you did." Bertrand Russell was had that point put to him, and he said um, something like, "Sir, why did you take such pains to hide yourself?" But if the intelligent design people are right, God isn't hidden. We may even be able to encounter God through science. Okay, so is he objective, an obje objective science scientist uh, willing to go wherever the evidence leads him? So let me just ask a question. Why do you think that, and one of the things that he says in this video is nothing I have said is compatible with a God. So why do we think that if we say to a science, we'll, scientist, we'll acknowledge um, all your points about how we got here, and, and we think somehow that that's going to cause them to say, oh, okay, if you'll believe my stuff, then I believe in God. When we say to a scientist, uh, yeah, we'll acknowledge that the earth evolved, we'll acknowledge that all the things in the Bible aren't true, they say, great, nothing about Christianity is true. And what I want to throw out there for all of us is when they say that, it's true. If we evolved, then what the Bible says isn't true. The gospel isn't true. And the same way that Paul says, if the resurrection didn't happen, you're still in your sins. I would say if we read the Bible and we discount what the Bible says, um, I would say, why would we believe anything in there? Now, I do have another explanation for, um, uh, I have another explanation for this scientist and other scientists. You know, it's amazing to me that the people who have the least excuse to deny the existence of God are the ones who deny the existence of God. See, there's a lot of kids that grow up, they didn't study the speed of light. They didn't study the universe. They read a book that somebody else studied and they told them, and they just believe by faith what they read in the book. But the people who are actually studying these things, they know and they suppress truth. And, and I would just say when it comes to me, um, I can believe Richard Dawkins and all the people like him. I can trust them or I can trust God. And I've kind of made the decision about who I trust. Here's what God says about scientists, and here's what God says about studying creation. He says this in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because he has shown it to them. Um, why'd you hide yourself? God didn't hide himself 
from any scientist. Scientists have to suppress what they see to come to the conclusions that they come to. Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So when we go, to, when we go through Genesis, uh, I'm going to talk about some other things. Um, for example, the speed of light. You know, the speed of light is a problem for creationists because it doesn't fit with creation models, some of the things that we see in the universe. You want to know who else the speed of light is a problem for? Evolutionists. It does not fit with their calculations either. And the answer to all these scientific questions is that there are a lot of things that we don't yet understand. And when we do understand those things, things will potentially make sense. So, but the one thing that we know for sure is that God knows and God tells the truth. And when it comes down to it, the question is, who are you going to trust? Who are you going to believe? And I would challenge you, if you're a person that has been steeped in false teaching, if you have been steeped in the writings of people who go through Scripture and ignore the things that the Bible says and explain the things that the Bible says away, I would say put those writings to the side and just start reading the Bible. See what the Lord does in your heart. Let me pray. God, thank you for giving us your word. And Lord, it is critical that we trust you. We're also brothers and sisters in Christ, and we know that you do not ask us to disconnect our brain. We do not have to be afraid of scientific truth. We do not have to be afraid of evidence. We do not have to be afraid of asking questions. We do not have to be afraid of having unresolved things or to be people that as we go through this life, we deny the things that are there. Lord, we're people that have been given a brain and Lord, we can think about these things, but we know ultimately that our understanding is fallible. And yet we know that your understanding is not fallible. And so we ask that you would help us to be people that trust you in your name. Amen.